This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled. Welcome to Reinvention Radio. Now, here's your host, Steve Olsher. Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Reinvention Radio. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello. Hello. Mary Goulet, Richie Ote. What's up, baby? Hello. How is it? All right, all right. Whiteway's holding it down in the studio. Kelly actually is here in San Diego with us, and uh, who knows? She may pop on the mic a little bit later, but uh, super excited to be joined by the one and only Jim Padilla. What's up, brother man? How are you, bro? What is going on, man? Uh, lots and lots and lots of good things in the world, and uh, lots of horrible things in the world as well. <laughs> I guess it just yes. makes it a, a Thursday. And uh, for those who are joining us for the first time, welcome. And if you've been a long-time listener of Reinvention Radio, then thank you for your support. We do broadcast live every Thursday from 12 until 2 Pacific. Uh, and you can check that out at reinventionradio.com. And I'm super excited about today's conversation. Uh, you know, let me, let me ask you a question first and foremost, and we'll talk a lot about your background and, and whatnot as well, because you've got just, a, I mean, you talk about sort of the poster child for reinvention. Uh, I mean, you, you personify what it means to reinvent your life, and you've done that um, well, more than a few times anyway. And so we'll talk, uh, we'll talk you know, about some of that. But uh, I, I, let me just ask you this question out of the gate here, because we're going to be talking about sales and sales conversions and selling conversations and whatnot. Um, and, you know, it's funny, right? And I think one of the things that you said uh, yesterday, so you joined us for our, our, our two-day launch your podcast intensive where we take people from zero to launch in just uh, just two days there. Right. And one of the things that you said, because we, we had a conversation there about selling and you know, just because you you want to monetize your visibility. I mean, it is you have a podcast, you should be able to monetize it. And one of the things you said that, you know, that kind of made sense to me, because I, th- I think a lot of people find selling to be sort of this dirty word. You know, it's like it's uncomfortable and, you know, I'm, I'm selling. And, and like I, I, I'm accused, people accuse me of selling way too much. And, and I actually take that as a compliment <laughs> because, you know, reality is I believe that you are the solution to someone else's problem every day. And they are literally waiting for you to show up in their lives. And if you have something that you know could benefit someone else and you don't like, let's just say you have that solution to their problem and you don't put forth that offer. I mean, you're, you're, you're doing, of course, a disservice to yourself and not being able to create the lifestyle and, and business and whatnot, maybe that, that you envision for yourself. But you're really doing a huge disservice to that person who needs what you have. And so you were talking about how we've been selling, I mean, literally since, I mean, day one, you know, in terms of selling our mama on giving us some food, selling our doctor on, you know, putting that, that blanket around us as soon as we come out. Like, so is selling a bad thing, man? What, what, what's your take on that? Get nice and close to that mic. Selling is life, right? That's, that's part of what I was sharing. It's, it's crazy to me that people think selling is something that you have to go do. And then, therefore, it's most, if it's something you have to do, it becomes a bad thing because who wants to do the stuff we have to do? Um, selling is actually what you do every day of your life. You know, we, we've been selling since we were born. Mm-hmm. You know, is that you sell your, your mother on feeding you yeah. or not sleeping? You know? Yeah, right. You sell your siblings on you get to ride shotgun or who gets to ride the, you know, the, the top bunk. Mm-hmm. You sell people on the great movie you just saw mm-hmm. or why they should go to the restaurant you were just at. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing this stuff our whole life. And yeah. when have you ever had a script? That's, well, it's, you're right. I mean, we just, we just talk. We have something we need or something that we want, and we sell people on that vision ostensibly. And, and so you're really, really good at that. 
But this is something that came, uh, I'm just going to say that it came to you almost out of necessity, right? I mean, yeah. because, take us back. I mean, you you grew up in a pretty rough house. And, I mean, you were selling, mm, hopefully, sometimes you closed the sale and sometimes you didn't. But, uh, I mean, I mean, you were, at home, you were selling folks on not beating the crap out of you. I mean, like, take us take us back to some of those early days so we can get a little bit more perspective around, you know, what you've had to go through to get to where you are now and, and what makes you the expert you are in terms of helping with selling and sales conversions and so on. But I think people need to understand uh, really about where you've come from first. Yeah, it, um, it, it started with some very crazy beginnings here. Um, you know, my mom was 16 and my dad was 17 when I was born. Wow. And neither one of them knew, had a clue what they were doing. Dad took off when I was weeks old and my mom was in uh, fear mode. Mm-hmm. She just, you know, she didn't know how else to handle her life except fear and anger and rage. And so I became the, <laughs> the outlet for that. Yeah. So I got beat with anything that was in sight. I had baseball bats, broomsticks, plates over your head, uh, closed fists, you name it. Mm-hmm. And when you're a little kid and you think, you know, your mom's supposed to be the one who you go to for protection yeah. and then she's the one you got to protect yourself from. Um, you, you start spending every waking minute figuring out how to sell her, essentially. On, I'm not beating the crap hey, out of you. Yeah. I'm safe. Don't hurt me. Yeah. And uh, that just became part of my life. You know, of course, I didn't know that at the time. It was just survival. And um, you know, soon I'm in, I'm in foster care at 13, on the streets at 16. So is that because mom, mom left and you, were, you had to fend for no. yourself? Or how did you end up in foster care? Or did you I, sell her on it? Or did you sell her on leaving, right? Maybe. Kind of a crazy story on this one. Um, basically, this was the one time she didn't hurt me. I, but, so what happened is we were in this trail blaze of just deceit, and there was no love in our home. There was anger and frustration, right? So I was getting beat and in trouble for every little thing. And I, I, got, I got myself – so because I was bad, I – you know, I deserved a lot of it. I just didn't deserve as much as she gave me, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got some severe punishment. This happened when I was 13. And I decided that uh, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm out of here. And I had no idea how to get out of here. So I called the, the sheriff. She was out of town for the weekend. I was home by myself. And I called. At 13. At 13. Wow. I called the sheriffs and I said, I needed to come and get me out of here because my mom's beating me. Mm. They said, well, do you have any marks on you? And at the moment, I didn't. So I grabbed a hammer. I was going to say about five minutes later, you and did. And I hit myself on the head did with you a hammer. Really? And I had a knot the size of a baseball. Holy and shit. The, the Colorado County Sheriff's came and took me away. So you, wow. Wow. So you actually took the hammer to your own head yes. to demonstrate that you had these injuries because that's how desperate you were to get out of that house. Yes. So you sold them. Correct. On, uh, on getting you out of there. Wow. Jeez. All right. Yeah. So 13 into the foster care system, you, you left the foster care, did you, get, did you get placed in houses? I mean, 13-year-olds don't get placed. I mean, it's... Correct. It was, it's, it's always, you're, 13 to 18 is not the ideal yeah, you're not, you're intake not. for foster care. No. They, they want little kids, cute cuddlies. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and I wasn't. Yeah. I was a little demon. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that, that was um, a rough stint. There was a couple of, of homes that I was in, and they were, their objective was to fix me mm-hmm. and put me back in the home mm-hmm. instead of, you know, nobody ever asked what was my perspective. They no. assumed I was a bad one. So while they were fixing me, 
the whole time I was like, how do I get out of this? Mm -hmm. So about a year and a half later, you know, I'm back in with my mom and um, it was just clear that it just wasn't going to happen. You know, we just, we just butt heads on everything. Um, Neither one of us were really into it. And uh, so 16 to Christmas break when I was 16, um, I ended up taking off, staying with some friends of mine who they're basically their, their alcoholic father owned a house where there was eight drug addicted teenagers, which I was one of them. Wow. And he paid the mortgage, stuffed uh, food in the kitchen every, every month, but he lived with his girlfriend. So really? eight knucklehead 16-year-old kids, Jesus. seven of which were dropped out of school. I was the only one who wasn't. So you were still in high school at that point? Only because that's the only way I could play baseball. Oh. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been. Yeah. Thank God for a 2.0 necessity. Right. That's wow. <laughs> that was it. I was trying to pursue a college scholarship. Wow. So did you go on to college? I did. Played some JC ball, but uh, life was was beating me up, and you know I ended up in in jail at nineteen because I was still you know I was going to school, but so I was still was, living on the streets. What was the crime? Drugs. So you were selling distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, probably paid pretty well. Seemed pretty attractive. I mean, you were nineteen, probably making good money. Yeah. Yeah. How Entrepreneur did, was born. How did you get busted? Uh, got careless and crazy. Um, it, interestingly enough, I, I started dealing just because I wanted to have, I wanted to, to be able to do drugs and I couldn't afford them. Mm. So I tried to sell enough so I could have free. So you had to convince a drug dealer, sell a drug dealer on bringing you on as a sales rep. Is that where you first started to learn sort of the sales lingo? Or, or, or yeah. there's, it's funny because I, I just watched, uh, I don't know if you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, I just started <laughs> watching that, but there was a, a scene where this guy uh, who was a drug dealer He's like, I don't deal drugs, man. Drugs sell themselves. Like, people just come up to me. They, I'm not a drug dealer. I just hand people what they want. So, <laughs> right. I mean, I guess in this case, you probably didn't really have to hone your sales skills, so to speak. But it is still a transaction. And right. I don't know. Did, did you think in hindsight? I mean, look, I sold speakers out of the back of a van. You know, I was that guy. Oh, we got a couple extra speakers <laughs> hey, here, I man. That, some. That, right? You know? They ordered eight, but <laughs> right? we only needed six. <laughs> right, exactly. A couple of them aren't on the invoice, dude. I don't want to take these back to the warehouse. Like, yes. I sold Every week. Every week, right, <laughs> yes. to different Made people. stupid error. <laughs> I mean, in hindsight, do you think it actually helped you in terms of personal relationships and selling in the whole night? More than you can ever imagine. Really? How so? I, because you start learning. Just going back to that same skill set, right? I started cultivating this environment where the only way I could stay safe was to learn how to influence the people around me that I was friend, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not the enemy. Don't hurt me. I got what you need. Mm-hmm. And that was from the time I was six years old, foster care in, on the streets, in jail. It was always about how do I manipulate the environment so that I win. Mm-hmm. And that was for, for preservation. A lot of times it was even at somebody else's expense because I needed to make sure I was going to win. Mm-hmm. And It's and, almost like it's like sales by referral too, right? So you had to build up your very, network. So you had to get in with somebody, prove to that someone you're a good dude. Right. And then they vouch for you. And they say, hey, you want some good, I don't know, was it crack? Was it Coke? Was it weed? What, what, what were we selling? It, it or all the meth, above? A lot meth. of meth. All right. So, you know, you need some good meth. You know, Jim's your guy. But that was uh, trust. I mean, they, yes. they had to know that you weren't uh, a cop. Right? right. I mean, they and so you had to build up that network. They had to refer people in. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for for that process of building yes. that, that uh, no like trust factor. Dude, you'd be amazed at the entrepreneurial mindsets of men behind bars. I bet. You know, I mean, hmm. they, they're lacking the, the common threads, and which is where I was headed um, with, with most um, inmates, at least on the male side for sure, is no father in the home, 
lack of education, mm-hmm. and addiction. Mm-hmm. And put that mindset together and you create some weird realities where you really believe that what you're doing is the only way you're going to make it work. Mm-hmm. So you, you, know, you rob because you think you don't have an alternative. You're mm-hmm. dealing drugs because you think it's the only way you can survive because who's going to hire me or I don't have worth. And you make up all kinds of crazy realities and then you live in it. But you're also – you understand networks and how to get people on your side. And mm-hmm. I started you – know, you know how my sales company works right now. We'll talk more about it in a bit. But I started doing that then. Like I sold very little. I had guys selling for me. Mm. I was, you know, I was going to straight to the guys to get, you know, you were, get you the You were source. the original scaler. That was <laughs> it, man. Yeah. Scaled that enterprise. Well, yes. I mean, look, that's, that's obviously how the cartels work. I mean, you just had your own right. little mini cartel thing going. Yeah. So you, you did or you did not graduate from college? Did not. You, so you did not. Did totally. you end up getting a GED or did you end up graduating from high school? I graduated high school. You did. And then you went out and you just immediately jumped into the world of sales or were you doing a million different things after? I did everything. I did every hustle you could. I sold. There's, my, kids at this, my kids are growing up 26, 28, 31 now. And they trip because we'll go places like, oh, yeah, I used to work for them. But like that too. You know, I've worked <laughs> everywhere. Were they all sales jobs or was there? Um, they always ended up being. But no, I, I, I worked. And then in a short period of time, I was always frustrated with the environment and the results. So I was mm-hmm. always suggesting things, which, you know. That had to work to your detriment, though, to some extent, because you were, I mean, to, to be so, I mean, self-reliant right i mean from the standpoint of you you really didn't have anyone in your life that believed in you you really didn't have anyone in your life that helped you to become a better person and so you had to figure all this shit out on your own yeah and so that probably made you an unbelievably strong person in a lot of ways and like you said very opinionated so i mean i would think to some extent it probably worked to your detriment in terms of being an employee Yes. Because you were so strong. Well, it sounds like you had a very quick mind motivated by extreme adversity. Yeah. And either people crumble with that or they – most people would implode. Mm -hmm. But you had a will in you. It sounded like even though you had a lack of role models, that's why I'm saying you must have a quick mind that you were surveilling the situation every time you walked into any room. Yeah, very much so. Mm -hmm. Heightened sense of awareness. Um, even now, I, I don't ever pull in a parking lot without first knowing where's the exit, what's my f- most direct way out. Mm. I don't care about being close to the door. I want to know why right. I can get out in a hurry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just, it's yeah. just innate. So where, the, did you fo- where did you find sort of your groove then as far as work went? And at what age were you when you finally were like, okay, this, this feels right? Uh, after a couple of very short stints in jail, fortunately, I never went to prison. Just some short-term stints, and I finally got to the point where, okay, I have to do something different. So, wait. So, you got you got thrown in the can at 19. How long did you serve? Uh, I was in for 30 days that time. Okay, 30 days. And then in your in your 20s? Yeah, or two, years later, two, two years oh, later. Two years later, I was early in again. 20s. Yeah, and that one was for a 90-day stint. So, okay. both times, I was able to work it into a deal where if I, I did some drug diversion or some sort of rehab, mm-hmm. um, then... My drop, my charges would be dropped, and so I was like all for it, that. So in your early twenties, you went back to drug dealing for a minute, correct? And then you got busted again, yep. and then you figured out, fuck, I'm not really good at this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. like I'm really good at the sales side, but I'm not so good at the not getting busted side. Well, so, you have to start learning on your resources, right? Because that when I'm having a bunch of guys sell for me, right? You're talking about a bunch of drug addicted guys who don't think they're not dependable. They get mm-hmm. stupid, and then they're turning you in. You know, so they get caught, I get caught. 
which yeah. is not it w- wasn't really a proper you know asset allocation. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. So you oh so okay, so went back and you obviously decided at some point, okay, I'm done with this. Did you? What was there? What was there a turning point? Did you meet someone? Did you find Jesus? Like what? What was the turning point for you? There really were several along the way, but um, I, I because I, I got in. You know, again, like you mentioned, no guidance. So I made every possible mistake known to man, and I did everything the hard way. There was nothing I learned the easy way, um, including fatherhood. So I had a couple of kids early that I didn't – I had it in my mind that since I couldn't see them, I didn't have to pay for them. So I started racking up this crazy debt. So there were a couple little gyms running around somewhere that you you don't have a relationship with? Correct. Wow. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Some of my – some of my not-so highlights. Um, But uh, also – an area where, you know, I've learned with, with my walk with God that that's not an excuse to not be the best man possible, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, I, I racked up all this debt with the district attorney. And so they're garnishing my wages. And uh, I was making $3,364 a month, and they were taking half of it. And oh. I wanted, I just wanted 3364 so I'm looking for some way to, to capitalize on that. And I get this commission opportunity to go earn what I'm worth. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking to the guy, and he's like, "Look, man, you can earn ten grand a month. You can do what you want." I'm like, "Dude, I just need to earn sixty six hundred dollars a month so I can keep half of it." Mm-hmm. So I end up going out, going in, and work with these guys, and just doing door to door alarm sales. Really? And I'm like, "This is so beneath me, and I will never do this. Who would do this?" And uh, until I go out in the streets and I watch guys coming in making two, three, so five. It was a drug dealer. You were making what kind of money? A lot. Like ten grand a week. Like, what are we talking? It, yeah, depending on 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 the day. And it was a cow, all cash operation. I used to pay right. all my rent with a lot of twenties. Yeah, so <laughs> ten grand a week going to a legit gig at maybe, like you said, five ten k a month. Right. Doing this door to door stuff that that was, that was probably a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, but at this time I had already adopted the the, the realization that I was going to have to work my way back through going to legitimate work. I was told, I was willing to take the hit. I just couldn't take the thirty three hundred dollar hit. I wanted mm-hmm. to like thing, give me something more robust. I you know got a family and getting ready to support here. So were you good at it? I was very good at I it. I bet I was very good at it. I started realizing right away that that my biggest challenge was number of doors that I could knock on and the amount of daylight that you burn in a day. Mm-hmm. So well, it's I, pretty easy too because you're like, hey. I, I'm, I'll, I've been in jail. I've been in jail not once, not <laughs> twice, but three times. Well, you can and take I can... your same model that you used in jail. <laughs> now you got the van. You're the dude hey, in charge man. of the van. Exactly dropping off the what happened. Mm-hmm. Exactly what happened. Uh, but inside of my first month, I started knocking on doors, and I said, okay, I need other guys to knock on doors so that oh, I can get into living rooms. So I had guys on both sides of the street. Pretty soon, I'm like, okay, I need more guys to get in the doors. Pretty soon, I got a van. I got a team that's out producing the whole office, and so then I'm just getting my own ADT dealership, open up offices in three cities, and I'm rolling with, with reps, knocking on doors, and I got mm-hmm. a phone room with 35 guys in it, banging it out. Wow. So, but, but again, I'm just thinking, like, you know, if you went up to the door and you've got, like, you know, a thug life tattoo on your, you know, on your <laughs> stomach and you lift up your shirt and you go, yeah, you don't want me in your house, do you? Yeah. Like, buy one that would of these. Be, right, buy one of these. <laughs> totally. like that. Talk about the sales pitch of all sales pitches. Like, yeah. do you know how many people I know in jail right now? A lot. Do you want right. me to call them and have them come in? I know your address. <laughs> oh, I, you open the door. I can see what's in here, right? right. I've already cased you your house. Right? <laughs> well, one of the things that that taught me in that environment was the power of selling with truth. Because so many times you don't want to offend somebody or you yeah. know, hurt their sensitivities and sensibilities. But when they're like, yeah, I think I'm in a safe neighborhood, I'm like, dude, do you? really understand that you're not mm-hmm. 
You know, you're not. Mm-hmm. You're a victim. The reason you know why we came to this neighborhood because we researched the most highly uh, victimized neighborhoods in the region, mm-hmm. and we're coming to sell you alarms. You're yeah. on that list. So you got to the point. You <laughs> ended up with 35 people. You said working in a, in a call room. So this is yeah. your. So this is your organization. Yep. You kind of took like a, I don't know, like a. Uh, what so you're only selling the alarms for this company like they just kind of gave you the green light to put together your own team and or yeah we've got this? a dealership we were an adt dealership an adt dealership yeah okay. how long yeah. did it take to do that from the time you first knocked on uh, the door that whole process was like six months jeez nice. well yeah. that is fast so how long did you run that race we did that for about two and a half years and we were just scaling massively and we just took a big risk on a deal and overshot our skis and and it fell apart and like in one month, we were rolling from a half a million dollars a month to almost nothing then three months later. That's crazy. We gambled. So do you have any residual coming off of that or no? No. That was a, I, I sold my piece of it. Mm-hmm. At the time, we, you know, we paid off what was, what was owed. We had a massive you know, deal to pay off with uh, employment taxes and everything else that happened there. And then you started – so did you jump into your current work after that or what? No. I, I, I stumbled into mortgage from there. Mm. Yeah, because uh, and this was another same kind. All these I've never searched anything except for what I'm doing currently. Mm-hmm. Everything has always found me. And the way we got into mortgage was uh, we had we were doing an install. We were selling CCTV and stuff with the home theater, mm-hmm. and we were doing an install on a used car dealership. And one of my installers was out there trying to collect a check, and the guy didn't want to pay him. So he gets me on the phone. I end up going out to his office. And we get into this conversation, and he's, he's a mortgage guy, or he's a car dealership guy. Finds out he's got a mortgage license, but he's never done anything with it. And he's in, I'm fascinated by who I am and what I'm doing. And he's like, "Dude, I got the license. You can put a team in here, and we can just split the money." And this is at the time, right when the rates were starting to drop. This is like 2003, right when everything's starting to hit into the great times. So that was on a Thursday. That Monday, we had a room full of loan officers, 30 plus loan officers. Rolling, um, and we're, we're, we're busting out loans left and right. So he was a good sales guy, too. <laughs> yeah, he was. The used car sales are the best there is. Come to collect a loan from him, and so, he sold yeah. you on working for him. The right. problem was we were selling people into a bunch of bad loans. Unfortunately, I'm, you know, I am very much partly responsible for what happened in 2008 because I put a lot of people into bad mm-hmm. loans knowingly mm-hmm. because I was selling for my benefit instead of theirs. Yeah. So, I mean, given everything that you've experienced, I think that's probably what makes you as good as you are now because obviously you've been on the other side of the table and your integrity was in question for, you know, a, a long period of time and you finally decided, hey, that's that's not the legacy I want to leave, right? So right. so the perspective that you bring to the table in terms of, you know, helping people with, with sales and sales conversations and sales conversion, et cetera, I mean, that comes from the place of... Uh, of truth, of being in integrity, of being honest, of being, yeah. you know, of not selling something that they that they don't need. And I mean, are those some of the I just I, I want to try to understand what it is that you think you do from a sales perspective that other people don't do that makes you as successful as you are. One is that I don't allow people to tolerate their own excuses because I've never accepted any of mine. And Lord knows I've got plenty. I could have quit a billion times, and justifiably so, because yep. I, you know, with every all the handicaps that I had in my life, whether they were given to me or I made them on my own, so I stand in front of people and just like I'm not going to let you buy your own nonsense and excuses, um, and so we we have a very simple process to our conversation, and the, we don't, you know, I'm I'm the anti system guy. 
right, when it comes to sales. Everybody teaches sales formulas, 12-step systems, follow a script, follow a script. Our, my sales training program is actually called Sales Unscripted. My podcast that we just launched, mm. <laughs> Sales Unscripted Podcast. Mm-hmm. Because, again, you've been doing this your whole life. It's about having powerful, engaged, truth-telling conversations with people, and you're focused on their best interest. But there, is a, but there is a general script. There is a general formula when you're trying to enroll someone into a product or a program or service that can be of benefit to them. So take us right. through – I mean, I know we, we you, every conversation is going to be unique, and I know you try to keep it unscripted, as you said. But take us through that, that basic formula, if, the, if you will, that outline of what a good sales conversation should sound like if you want to optimize conversions. Well, the first thing is that uh, we call, our whole goal is to have clarity at the end. We want you crystal clear on what it is you want, why you want it, what's the cost of you not having it, what's in the way, and how motivated are you to actually do it. And now the, the great part of that is I am literally not in a conversation to sell you anything and certainly not to sell you my thing. It's to help you get clear on what you want and then give you massive motivation in the direction you need to go to start solving it. So we, we talk about taking the uh, park bench approach to sales. You should be able to sit down in the 30 minutes with a random stranger on a park bench, know what they want, why they want it, what's in the way of getting it, what's their motivation, and, and are they ready to get rolling? And then, hey, I know somebody who can solve that for you. Pick up the phone and make an introduction. It's not about selling your stuff. It's about solving people's problems. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that doesn't require a script. It doesn't require a funnel. It requires having a human interaction with somebody oh. that you care about. Mm-hmm. And we can do that all day long. Mm-hmm. And that's really like the biggest part of my sales process. I mean, I put so much goodwill out to people and help as many people as I can that they just send me people. I get, they're like, hey, man, Jim's great. Even though I never bought from him, I had a fantastic engagement with him. Mm-hmm. He cares about my outcome. He cares about where I'm going. And he pointed me in the right direction. And, you know, I get a lot so, of that come back. So how do you, how do you kind of balance the, the whole notion of, uh, of like people try to teach you know, like they, they feel like somebody has a problem and they, they try to teach them or provide a solution to that problem. And when, they, and when they do that, they actually give the person the answer that they were looking for. So the person on the receiving end is like, okay, sweet. I got everything I need. Like you answered my question. Like you solved my problem. So I don't need your product or your program or your service or whatever. So like, how do you balance the two? Because it seems like in conversations, people are looking for like I'm guilty of this. Like I am, I am, a, I am a, a like I'm an idea person. So when somebody comes to me and they're like, I, you know, I'm thinking about doing this, or I'm, thinking, I'm like, well, you should try that, and they're like, that's great, and then they run off and I never see them again, right? So like I, I'm guilty of that. So how do you balance the two between teaching and, and helping someone, but yet creating that that gap? if you will, right, where people are like, okay, I need what you have. I need that solution. Right. Well, you did a great job of it yesterday at the the training, right? We spent two days building our podcast. And then everybody's all excited. I got this podcast. And then how did you wrap it up? Why do you have a podcast and what are you going to do with it next? Everybody's like, uh, I don't know, right? So now that you've solved one problem, your job is to make sure you open their eyes to what new problems exist so that then there might be a need for you um, or anybody else that you can introduce to them. So it's it, the whole key, again, it's not about setting you up for success. It's about setting them up for clarity 
And clarity just means, means that you got to show them crystal clearly. If you go down path A, here's what's likely to happen. If you go down path B, this is probably a, the result. Mm-hmm. And then they choose. Mm-hmm. They choose what they want to do. And if they want to try the knucklehead way and make, make 45 mistakes before they come back, it's totally up to them. Mm-hmm. Or they can take the easy path and say, okay, I like what you got. Let's work. So some of the things, so what, what are some of the mistakes you're seeing people make then in these, in these sales conversations? And I know you've had a million of them yourself. You've got your team. And, and by the way, uh, I don't even know if I've done you justice here. So uh, we're talking to Jim Padilla, <laughs> who just threw you in the pit here uh, right out of the gate. So we're talking to Jim Padilla from Gain the Edge. And, and by the way, the, so your, your company specifically focuses on helping who do what? Uh, our sweet spot is working with seven and eight figure experts, um, coaches and consultants primarily, and, uh, and who are in scale mode, meaning we, we really focus on scale events, online launches, um, live events, uh, environment where you're going to sell a high number of sales mm-hmm. in a short duration of time. And that's typically a, taf- a tough task for, your, for a standard team to, to take on. Yeah. So we, we're really focused in that realm. And, um, and we see people do everything under the sun by, you know, trying to have their customer service people do sales, bring on your mother, your brother, whoever. Um, and then, of course, try to figure out how to manage them and how to track them, how to, keep, how to make it all work. Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to get a result, just typically not the optimal result. <laughs> Is it, what's your model? Is it like a percentage off of it? Is it flat per call? Uh, we do both. Well, we have an upfront. Uh, an onboarding uh, fee because we do a lot of strategy work in the beginning. Which is non-negotiable, damn it. <laughs> and we, we uh, just, just for full transparency, actually one of the reasons why I wanted Jim to come in here is because um, we work with Jim's company, Gain the Edge. And so Jim's company handles uh, the the calls uh, that folks want to have about uh, our products or programs or services when, when they need to talk to someone. Uh, outside of Kelly, when Kelly gets you know overwhelmed, there's too much going on. We need a team behind us. Uh, we work with Jim's team, who handles uh, all the sales calls. So, uh, full transparency. Yes, uh, we are a yeah. client. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're perfect. Said right. We do live events. Work with your launches. You know, when you're scaling. Yeah. Um, and and we are what we bring to the table is that we're really a sales division. You're not hiring a salesperson or a sales team. You're bringing on a strategic sales partner. And we yeah. want to seat at the table so that we can help make those decisions and bring our expertise to your growth plan. Yeah. So you, you didn't quite finish up there. You were really interrupted by this guy. Um, so uh, so there's like an onboarding sort of training type fee to bring your team up to speed. And then wh- how, does it, how does it work after that in terms of uh, your compensation? Uh, then we have uh, typically if there's ongoing, uh, a lot of times it just, just hires for an engagement. But if there's ongoing support, um, then there's a monthly strategy and support fee because you, know, you have team leaders, project managers you know, assigned to you. Uh, and then, of course, there's you know, a commission for the sales. And all of that's customizable based on volume, size of offering. Frequency. Do you ever do anything with retention? Because it seems like yeah. if customer service and sales got together, it's like yes. the ultimate retention team. It's important and it's highly overlooked. So basically the, the, place, the lanes we try to stay in is from introduction to conversion – and then in from conversion to handoff and onboard. Because those are the two biggest places. You, know, you can lose sales in the beginning, and then you could l- lose the stickiness in the sale post 
post-conversion. Right, if they don't get yeah. onboarded quick, for so, sure. And, and one thing that happens, a lot of our clients are in scale mode. So maybe you planned on or you think you planned on having 600 new clients in the next three weeks and things went crazy and you got 1,100 new clients. And now all of a sudden people can't, you've got slow response times. They're not getting back to you. People are calling our team. Hey, what's going on? So we, you know, we've seen so much of that, that we, we try to help infuse any strength and, and reinforcement in that process ahead of time so that we can eliminate, you can't eliminate all of it, but we, we've seen enough to know where are the, the typical spots that can crack. Speak, since you said the word typical, I was going to say, what's your typical conversion? That's a great question. I actually just did a, a post on that, a video on that the other day. That's one of the most, um, Loaded questions that there is on the planet. There's so many variables. Oh, Correct. for sure. There is. Because I mean, a million variables. the thing that you need to know is who is your ideal client? What's your ideal source you get them from? And when do you typically convert for that environment? Because, um, you know, there's different conversions if you brought them through a funnel where they were cold client or cold traffic three days ago versus somebody who's been on your list for nine months. Mm-hmm. Are you selling a $1,000 product or a $10,000 product? Right? Are they coming from a live event where they referral? Which is probably why your onboarding is non-negotiable because you Correct. learn all that in that. Exactly. We have to know all of it. And then even, you know, like a lot of guys in the industry come to me for, hey, Jim, what are you seeing for pe- in conversions for people who book an appointment three days out versus five days out? And, you know, we have metrics for all this stuff. We got data everywhere. You know, we do yeah. 25,000 sales conversations a year. Yeah. Nice. But, again, there's, there's so many variables to go hand in hand with that. So how, how do you – so if you're in the mode of trying to convert someone into enrolling, investing in a product, program, or service, what, what are some of the key variables that you have to address, get answers to? I mean, like, is that a question you would ask? Like, you know, how long have you been on my list? Like, how do you know me? Like, where did we meet? Absolutely. Like, like, are those some of the qualifying questions you would ask to try to get to? Yeah. And then you would kind of go to, it's like, you know, pick your own mystery, you know, type books, right? Like, if it's yeah. A, you go, like, is that, do you literally do that yes. on the fly, depending on the answers? Totally. Um, and again, going back to the, to the park bench conversation, right? If you're sitting at a park bench with somebody, likelihood you're going to say, hey, what brought you here? Mm-hmm. What are you doing here today? Yeah. Right? No different. Is that, is that when you're wearing your trench coat or not? Because I, you know, because that's another, that's a whole other variable in the park bench. Yeah. And, are you a cop? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, okay. So, yeah. So, you're, so you're asking the questions. Yeah. What does that sound like? Yeah. It, it's that. But when I talk to somebody, hey, why me? Why now? Always. What brought you here? Why me? And why now? And those are two separate questions that need an answer. They're not, uh, they're not rhetorical. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. It's because I want to know. It's like, mm-hmm. tell me what, why me? Because it could have been you were referred to me. It could have been you saw me speak somewhere. It could have been you clicked on something. I need to know that so I know mm-hmm. how to lead the conversation. Why now? And it can't be like, these are the things. Take, write this stuff down, guys, wherever you're at. Pull your car over and do that. But you don't let people say things like, oh, yeah, I'm talking to you now because I saw your email and I clicked on it. That's not an answer. What was happening in your life that made this email seem like a good one to respond to? Mm-hmm. And why now instead of three months ago? Mm-hmm. Like, you got to know what's really happening in their life. Otherwise, how are you going to help them? Mm-hmm. Back to the clarity. Because when you're clear and you're helping them get clear, then you're actually leading them. Because that's part of the, the number one reason that people don't make decisions Especially these days, there's so many opportunities, so many bright, shiny objects that until they kind of go, oh, wait a minute, I am here and I want to go there and I am missing. And this guy seems to be the guy that has the answer to that. Correct. 
so the clarity is so it's it sounds like there's not a script but there's still a formula there's just there's logic and reason right i mean it's right? a human conversation it's just like exactly i mean it's no different i, I really try to take all the, the boundaries off of this because if you were at let's say a, at a coffee shop who, who do you have a sibling no yeah but who's your best friend steve <laughs> hey, I don't like that laugh. That's yeah, not a nice laugh. Trish. Okay. Probably, probably, probably my wife. Okay. So if you're at the coffee shop with your wife, Trish, that was just yeah. said? Okay. Hi, Trish. So if you're at a coffee shop with Trish and she's telling you that she's really frustrated about a specific problem in her life and she's sharing it with you and she starts saying, but you know, I don't really need to do anything about it. I'll just deal with it next year. You love her. You care about her. You want her success and you want her to win. So are you going to, what's your normal response going to be? No, you're not going to wait till next year. You can't. Why would you do that? I want to see you happy. I want you struggle free. I want to solve this problem so we can move on to the next step. Right? So just normal, you know, that's stuff that's innate in us as human beings. So how much of the sales process when a salesperson isn't good at selling do you think it's really them not being clear on that, right? Like, is my products or service really the answer, right? Yes. They might be really empathetic. They might really be wondering, but then they're going, is my product really the answer? How much do you have to... You got to shut that off. Shut that off. You have, and this is... I get people say this a lot because I, I didn't really experience huge success until I embraced the idea that I have to help you first. And it's not about me. And people say, well, that's easy for you to say, Jim. You have millions or you made this or that. I promise you it didn't. It was not the other way around. Mm-hmm. It didn't make money and then start going, okay, now I'm just going to help people. It's like, no, I had to lead you to your solution. The money followed. Mm-hmm. And you have to be crystal clear about that and making sure that you want to lead people to, to the promise that. And this is, I, I, again, another post on this the other day, but people talk about um, leading people, leading a horse to water. But you can't make them drink, right? And uh, people spend all their time trying to figure out how to make them drink. And Naveen Jain, who's a you mm-hmm. know, billionaire, one of the most creative people on the planet, he says, you need to be focusing on making them thirsty. You make them thirsty, they'll find the freaking water. Mm-hmm. Stop trying to force feed them water when they haven't realized they're thirsty. Mm-hmm. So all I'm trying to do is help you understand that you're thirsty or if you're thirsty. And if you are, what are you thirsty for? Hmm. Yeah, that reminds me. I saw this like National Geographic where they were the the one you had as a teenager. That no, no, no. The monkeys. (laughs) That was uh, Playboy. Um, (laughs) So like the monkeys knew where the water was, but they didn't know. The natives didn't know where the water was. And some of this is paraphrased. But so they they would make the monkey. They'd give it like salt or something, and then they would just follow the monkey, and then. They, it was some way where the monkey would go in and they'd get the, it was trapped. So they kind of got the monkey and the water. But it was, it was this interesting, like, same theory, though. Mm-hmm. Like, make them thirsty. Make them thirsty. Make them thirsty. Or yeah. you know they're going to be thirsty at some point. They're that, back to that gap. Mm-hmm. They're thirsty for something. So in the Correct. clarity, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And that's it. If they're not thirsty now, okay, that's great. Then under what circumstances will you be thirsty so that we can prepare you for that? Mm-hmm. Right. So because, you, you know, the part of this is you have to understand where do you actually where are you ideally suited to serve people? You know, I have a waterfall analogy that um, 
we're we're putting into place. We, I just came up with this recently, and we're gonna we're gonna put it out uh, as as a resource. But there's a big difference from somebody who's floating, you know, comfortably down the river because they don't really have acknowledged that there's a waterfall coming. Mm-hmm. That's somebody who's in a completely different stage of business, and you might be ideally suited to serve that person. Harder to find them, mm-hmm. harder to motivate them, but that might be where you're best. Most of us are trying to find the people who are getting ready to go over the waterfall because they're super easy to find because they're panicking and they're jumping up and down. The problem is you're still having the prevention conversation with somebody who needs a freaking rope. Mm-hmm. They don't need a lecture. They need a rope. And you're busy trying to teach them how to prevent the problem. Like, dude, I'm in full problem. Mm-hmm. Save my ass, please, right now. Right? Or are you with the person who is designed to help them through the devastation at the bottom of the waterfall? Or are you a repair and fix and reinvent expert? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, look, needless to say, we, um, there, there's a million different paths we could take here in this conversation. And right. there's so much to cover. I mean, but selling is, uh, as you said, something that we've been doing since the, the day we were born and certainly something that's been going on uh, since the beginning of time. And Lord knows, uh, if if you haven't had the opportunity to to work with someone like Jim Padilla and the team at Gain the Edge, uh, or you know ch- at least follow you and, and see your posts, like you said, and I know you do a lot of videos and so on. So, you know, definitely check out uh, what what Jim is up to. Best place for people to get more information uh, about uh, Gain the Edge and how to reinvent these sales conversations and conversions. Yeah. Uh- Follow the uh, check me out at uh, Sales and Scripted Podcast. That's what's coming out That's right the new now. One, right? Yes. Sir. What's the website yes, though? What's the uh... um, you can uh, salesandscripted.com. Salesandscripted.com. Yeah. By the time it pops out, that's going right. to be up. So. All right, my friend. We're really glad to have you uh, and your team on our team, and really glad to have you here on Reinvention Radio. So for Jim that's Padilla that. of Gain the Edge and Mary Goulet and Richie Ote, I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. You just got dismantled. Thanks for listening to Reinvention Radio. For more information about the show and your host, Steve Olsher, visit reinventionradio.com. You were born to do one amazing thing but most people spend a lifetime trying to identify what it is. If you're in a job you don't like or are unemployed, if you're in a state of transition or just can't shake that nagging feeling that you were meant and made to do something extraordinary, then the Reinvention Workshop is exactly what you need. Led by award-winning self-help author Steve Olsher, the Reinvention Workshop will forever change your life. The Reinvention Workshop takes you step-by-step through Steve's proven formula that has helped so many people get on the right path and clear about what they were born to do. Take the first step to realizing the life you deserve and desire by visiting thereinventionworkshop.com today. No more delays. No more denial. Reconnect with your true self. Learn to live with purpose and conviction and become who you were born to be. The world is waiting for you. What are you waiting for? Log on to thereinventionworkshop.com today. That's thereinventionworkshop.com.